Amen. Amen. Well, thank you, kids ministry team. And our passage this morning is not particularly related to Mother's Day. However, everyone that we will find in this text has a mom. So that, but that's about a, but that's not going to preach. So, so would you please turn, turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11. So my wife and I, uh, when we got married, we, as many of you probably did, we made a five-year plan. Anybody else have a five-year plan? Okay, we were the only ones. We had a five-year plan. We were really excited about that plan. And uh, now, on our anniversary each year, and this is fresh in my mind because this was just recently, on our anniversary, we always set apart time to look back and to laugh at our five-year plan, right? Because it didn't go necessarily according to our plan. We had hopes. Actually, we thought that we could save up enough to buy a house in cash. Little did we know that five years later, houses would be three times the price of what they were when we made that little plan. But, you know, we thought we would hold off on having children, and we thought we would put down roots and stainer, and we thought that we would never go into vocational ministry, and we thought a lot of things. And we look at where we are now, and it, we just marvel at God's mercy, that he moved us here, that he, he did all of this work in our lives. And if, if I were to go back to the beginning of our marriage, as we sat down and put all the details in place, we never would have made this plan. We never would have made anything that was as, as good and as right as what God orchestrated in our lives. And I would suspect as I look across this room that the, that's true for each of us. Each and every one of us, as we look at our lives, if we look carefully and closely enough, we see that all of the little details came together, whether it was the, the plans or, or the problems, whether it was the triumphs or the tragedies, all of those details came together to bring us to this place right now. God is good. Now, the, the world would look at those same details and the world might say, well, this is blind luck or a happenstance. But as followers of Jesus, we're taught that we're supposed to look further and we're supposed to look up. So Proverbs 16.9, for example, says that the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. So, so you make your plans, but God is the one who's grabbing your feet and he's picking them up and putting them in the direction that they need to go. God in his loving sovereign care orchestrates every detail of our lives. Now the big theological word that we use to capture that mysterious truth is the word providence. And I want you to lean in close in case you weren't listening because our outline is built around the word providence so you really need to know what that word means if this is going to make any sense. Providence, John Piper defines this way. So in reference to God, the noun providence has come to mean the act of purposefully providing for or sustaining and governing the world. The word providence refers to the way that God sovereignly leads and directs and orchestrates our lives. So now we're looking at Acts chapter 11. And in this story, we're about to witness something miraculous, something incredible. The, the Jewish believers who we've been following now up for these first 10 chapters are about to be intertwined with Gentile believers. Gentile is just a word for non-Jewish people. So most of us in this room would be Gentile believers. And they have not been worshiping together, but here in chapter 11, this collision is about to happen. Oil is going to mix with water. Humanly speaking, this shouldn't work. I mean, if, if you were to stand back and ask the, those original believers, like, hey, how is this going to go? Most of them would probably say, I don't know. I trust him, but it's going to be a mess. This shouldn't work. 
And yet, as we'll see in chapter 11, by God's providential care, He puts all the pieces in place such that this miracle could take place. That's what we're going to see in the text. Now, some weeks we zoom in real close and we deal with a small passage and we deal with each minute detail. But this morning, we're going to scale back and we're going to deal with all of chapter 11 because I want you to see the, the larger scope of what it is that God's doing here. And what we will see as we zoom out and look at chapter 11 of Acts is we will see a lesson in providence. Okay? A lesson in providence. It's a large chapter, so we're going to break it into sections. In our first section, verses 1 to 18, we are going to find that God prepares his people. Hear now God's holy, inspired, inerrant, living and active word to us today. Acts chapter 11, verses 1 to 18. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air, and I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea, and the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then, God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So here we see that God prepares his people. Now that is a dense, complicated passage. But if you look in your Bible at chapter 10, you will find that almost everything that we just read in Acts chapter 11, 1 to 18, is repeated nearly word for word from what we saw in chapter 10. Now, two weeks ago, our brother Matt Scarlett preached an excellent sermon on Acts chapter 10, and he worked through all of the details, and he, he did an excellent job. I listened to it. It was wonderful. And so you could find that sermon. If you missed it, you could go to our website, and you could listen to that sermon as he unpacks all the details. But here's the thing. I don't think it would be a wise use of our time for me to repeat the sermon that Matt preached this morning. So instead, I'm going to do a quick summary but then I want to deal with the question of why is this being repeated? Right? Well, Luke's only got a limited amount of word count. Why is it then that he would repeat this story back to back? 
well, that's a quick summary of the passage. What do we see in verses 1 to 18 in this story? We see that God revealed to Peter that the barriers of the Mosaic law that made it nearly impossible for the Gentiles to draw near to God had been removed in Christ. That's the lesson. And that lesson is sealed as God sends the Holy Spirit and essentially gives a a Gentile Pentecost that mirrors the Pentecost that happened in Jerusalem. God is sealing the lesson. He's doing a new thing. So Christ fulfilled the law, as it says in Matthew 5. Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And he brought us out of the Mosaic covenant and into the new covenant, as it's explained in Hebrews chapter 8. And this new covenant is not like the old covenant, as it's explained all over the place in the New Testament, and as it's foretold in the Old Testament. Which is why, when Peter repeatedly refused to eat these animals that were forbidden under the Mosaic law, God declared, what God has made clean, do not call common. So Here's the lesson in a nutshell. In the new covenant, the only obstacle for those who would enter in is the obstacle of the cross. There's still an obstacle. There's quite an obstacle. Jesus said, anyone who would come after me must take up his cross. Right? So there is an obstacle. But that is the only obstacle that would keep someone from coming into the new covenant. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's the lesson that Peter needed to learn and these people needed to learn. You don't need to adopt a new diet to come into the family of God. You don't need to book an appointment with your doctor for a circumcision to come into the family of God. These are big changes. Applied to modern terms, I would also remind us, you don't need to adopt a particular dress code to come into the family of God. You don't need to adopt a a particular group of preferences or, or a music style to come into the family of God. There's one obstacle, and it is the obstacle of the cross. That was the lesson of chapter 10, and it is again here the lesson of chapter 11, 1 to 18. The old barriers are gone, the door has been opened for the church to go out to the Gentiles and for the Gentiles to come in. Now, this is wildly complicated, and that's why in chapter 15 we're going to be talking about this again. But this morning, I want to kind of scale back because we're we're asking a bigger question. I'm going to want to say, why is this repeated? If it was just covered in chapter 10, why now is it repeated in chapter 11? And 18 verses, this is a big block. I put forward two reasons. First, it's repeated because it is monumentally important. It's repeated because if we miss this detail then we miss the gospel. If the gospel is is Judaism, Mosaic, covenant, plus Jesus, fulfill all of this and take up your cross, that's not the gospel. And, And if we impose that upon people, we are not presenting them with the gospel. We're putting barriers in their way that keep them from everlasting life. And Jesus came to, he fulfilled those barriers. They were object lessons, they found their fulfillment in him, and now they're done. So this is monumentally important, and it was a huge lesson that the people needed to learn. So it's repeated because in the Bible, repetition is is like the biblical author's way of bolding, all-capping, and underlining. And he's going to repeat it again in chapter 15. So it's, it's a big deal. That's the first reason why it's repeated. But secondarily, it's repeated because in chapter 10, who learned the lesson? In chapter 10, Peter learned the lesson, right? Which is great, because he was a leader in the church. And you want your leaders to get their theology right. So Peter learns his lesson. But then in chapter 11, who's the emphasis on? It's not on Peter. It's on the church. Because if, if this 
new family of God is going to hold together, it's not enough for the leader to understand. The people need to understand. The church needs to be ready to welcome in these people who were once outsiders. And so what we see here in chapter 11 is that the church is going through the exact same problem that Peter went through in chapter 10. Remember in chapter 10, he's saying, far be it from me, Lord. I've never put any of that unclean stuff in my mouth. I'm not going to start now. Nice try. And God says, don't call unclean what I've called clean. So Peter had to go through that lesson. And now it's the same thing in the church. They're saying, you went and you ate in the house of a Gentile. You went into an unclean place. They're wrestling through the same Lesson. Sometimes, if I could say, sometimes when we read this story, we read it through our modern lens, and we think that, you know, the problem was perhaps racism. Well, the Jews, they were, they were racist. They didn't like the Gentiles, and that was the problem. So stop being so prejudiced and go. But when we read closely, now, I'm sure that there was some racism and prejudice in the church. But when we read closely, the real problem wasn't racism. It was It was theology. There were some lessons that they had not yet learned. And until they learned those lessons, the door was effectively closed for the Gentiles to come into the church and for the church to go to the Gentiles. So God here is just bursting those doors open. Peter needed to learn the lesson. The people needed to learn the lesson too. And where we see the providence of God is as we move into verse 19 in just a moment, everything that happens in verse 19 following would have blown the church to pieces if it wasn't for what we see in verses 1 to 18. If God didn't take the time to to give a little on-ramp to his people, to teach his people this lesson through the mouth of the Apostle Peter, then verses 19 to the end would have have absolutely ruptured the church. But God is, is wise. And so he taught them, and then he changed everything. So now, as we're moving from verses 1 to 18, I want you to imagine you're watching a movie because we see this in movies, what, what Luke is doing is he's shifting to an entirely different scene now. So imagine, scene fades. That scene in Jerusalem is over. And now we jump into a new scene, and we're following new people. We're following a group of unnamed men and women, and they are fleeing. And what he's doing is he's actually sending us back to chapter 8. And most of you weren't with us in chapter 8, because we got a bunch of guests. Tricky thing about doing a series on a baptism Sunday. In chapter 8, that's when Stephen was stoned. And so persecution was falling heavy on the church. And the Hellenistic Jews, those Greek-speaking Jews, they were fleeing from Jerusalem for their lives. And here in verse 19, the camera moves away from Peter in this episode to follow these unnamed men and women as they flee from home. And in this lesson, we see that God moves his people. I'm going to read verses 19 to 21. Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. So here... These aren't the apostles. We don't know who these folks are. They're unknown people. They're just people like us, right? And they're fleeing for their lives. And what happened when persecution landed in Jerusalem was, you can imagine, it's that time of year where you got those dandelions popping up in your yard. It was as if the enemy picked up the church like an old dandelion, and he blew. And all these seeds were just scattered out into the world. 
And in the moment, all of those seeds, all of those people were probably horrified and hating it, right? It seemed like an absolute tragedy, and it would feel that way to us too. If we're running with our family, trying to get them out, leaving the life that we knew behind in Jerusalem so that we could live, they're fleeing and there seems to be no meaning in it, no purpose in the madness. But from our perspective, standing as we are now, this 2,000 years in history, we see that all of those scattered seeds eventually landed. And they took root. And this persecution launched the church into mission faster than any missions committee ever could or ever has. That season of persecution changed everything. So as they were scattered, the people were going and, and they were sharing the gospel. And as was the pattern that was modeled by Jesus, they were going to the Jews first. And so they were going into synagogues and they were telling them about the hope that they have in Christ. That the one who has who has fulfilled all of the messianic expectations, has come. The Messiah King has come. The one we've been longing for has come. But some of them, in their being scattered, they opened their mouths and they spoke to the Greeks. They spoke to the Gentiles. These ones were scattered all the way to Antioch. Now, to put some perspective on this, Antioch was 300 miles from Jerusalem. This is a, so these folks are far from home. And they begin to share the gospel with the Greeks in Antioch. And the Greeks begin to turn to Christ. And this is a massive development because Antioch wasn't just some city. It's the third largest city in the Greek Empire. And it was a city that was notorious for being a, a pretty wicked city. So one commentator notes, the city was not only known for its sophistication and culture, but also for its vices. The beautiful pleasure park of Daphne. Any city with a pleasure park is a tricky city. The beautiful pleasure park of Daphne was a center for moral depravity of every kind. And the expression Daphniki Moors became a proverb for depraved living. So Antioch was sin city. It was so wicked, in fact, that they had expressions about how wicked it was. It was like what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. In fact, it might be helpful to picture Antioch as the Las Vegas of that culture, of the Roman Empire. And so now you've got this city, and and it's being transformed by the gospel. And people are coming to Christ within Sin City. Now again, let's just, let's scan back to that scene we were looking at in verses 1 to 18. What did we see in verses 1 to 18? We saw the church in Jerusalem breathing into brown paper bags. (laughs) Peter! You had a dinner date with Cornelius? Are you crazy? And Peter says, listen, it's, it's okay. Here's what God is teaching us. And we got to be ready for this. <sighs> okay, okay, this is good. God is doing this thing. Meanwhile, a church is being planted right next to Pleasure Park in Sin City. And the Gentiles are coming to Christ. And, and there's this massive movement. And you can see the wisdom of God, can't you? Because these folks over here needed a pretty significant on-ramp to be able to recognize and celebrate what God was doing over here. But of course, God is wise, and so God continued his work. And Antioch, interestingly, from this moment on in the book of Acts, Antioch is now the center of of the Christian movement. Here we we see a shift. When missionaries are sent out in the rest of the book of Acts, where are they sent from? Antioch. When missionaries come back to give their reports, where do they come back to give their report? To Antioch. Fascinating. So so God is, is doing something here that they never could have anticipated. If there was a missions committee in Jerusalem, I can guarantee you that in their five-year plan, nobody was saying, hey, you know what? Let's make Antioch the center of operations. Nobody was thinking that. Nobody in their wildest dreams would have made that plan. And yet, that didn't matter because God providentially prepared his people. Then he providentially 
moved his people to exactly where they needed to be when they needed to be there. That was the second lesson. But as we keep reading, we learn that God equips his people as well. So we see this in verses 22 to 26. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. Again, praise God they have that on-ramp because now they're hearing about what's happening in Antioch. And so they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus and looked for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. So here we see that God equips his people. The church in Jerusalem, having been prepared, hearing news about what's happening, they send Barnabas. They send one of their best for this 300-mile journey, this 15-day journey to minister to the people in Antioch. And Barnabas was exactly what that church needed. He was a special man. We saw a glimpse of his character in chapter 9. If you remember chapter 9, that was when Saul of Tarsus, who we know as the Apostle Paul, that was when Saul, after leading the the stoning of Stephen, after terrorizing the church, he, he came to Christ. His eyes were open, and so he came to the church, and he said, I know it's hard to believe, but I'm a new man, and I'm one of you. And everybody else was looking at him with suspicion, except for one. We read, And when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, no doubt. For they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. So Barnabas was just a, he was just a special guy, uniquely equipped for this moment in the church's life. He was an instrumental figure in the early church. Interestingly enough, very quickly in the book of Acts, he's just going to disappear off the radar. The, the gifts, the skill set, the man that God made him to be was instrumental in the early days, but those gifts kind of fade off into oblivion later on. What was this gift that made him so instrumental in the early days? Well, he was, literally his name meant son of encouragement. He had the ability to see past the prejudice and the religiosity and the self-righteousness that often blinded his peers. And with the eyes of faith, he saw these disenfranchised people that were being drawn to the Lord. And Barnabas was a bridge builder. He was a, he was a unity maker. Right? That was the way that God had gifted him and equipped him. He saw the best. Love believes all things, hopes all things. Well, Barnabas was a man who was full of the love of God. Believing all things, hoping all things. Even when terrorist Saul comes into the community. And so they send Barnabas to Antioch. They send him to Sin City. And he sees this congregation of uncircumcised, unclean Gentiles. And they're worshiping Jesus. And the text tells us, and he was, what? Glad. He was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. I love that. He was exactly the man needed. He saw that what would have been a messy church. And he was glad. Not suspicious. Not annoyed about their diet. Not nitpicking about their dress code and their practices. No, God was drawing lost men and women to himself, transforming a city And Barnabas looked upon it, and he was loving it. He was loving it. 
But he quickly realized that this church was outgrowing his capacity. There were obstacles and challenges in this church that we, we don't have the capacity to understand. I mean, you think about how hard it is for us as a people to stay united. We have our different preferences in, in this room and our different uh, passions and, and all of that, and, and we manage to hold together. But here you've got a church that's growing, and they've got, they've got Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, and they've got people who've been living under the Mosaic law with, with the purity laws and, and all of these things that they've been learning from childhood given to them by God, and, and they're with these Gentiles who don't fit with any of this, and, and they're trying to live together and, and worship together and grow in their walk with the Lord together, and what a mess it must have been. And Barnabas says, I need help. He says, who is sufficient for this? Who has the mind to be able to to teach us through this monumental shift that's taken place? Who is someone who can speak to the the Jews? Someone who understands that language and and can navigate through everything they're seeing in the text and yet can relate to the Gentiles? Who has the zeal and the resolve to stand firm? And then he remembers, I know a guy. And he goes off to find Saul of Tarsus. And if you remember that sermon that Pastor Paul preached about all the work that God was doing in Saul's life, Saul was a a man who had been prepared for this very task. A man who had trained under Gamaliel, who had this brilliant mind, top top of his class, yet Saul of Tarsus, a man who grew up in the Greek world. Here was a man who who had been rejected by his own here is a man who had been the one who rejected others. He, he could speak across all of the lines, and God had been humbling him for the last ten years, preparing him for this season. And so Barnabas goes 210 kilometers to find Saul of Tarsus. And in Saul, he found exactly the man that he needed. God had prepared him. Moving on to our third point, but before we do, it's, it's beautiful, really, when you scale back and, and look at what God has done. Some might say it's providential what God has done. Saul was the one who had overseen the stoning of Stephen. Saul was the one terrorizing the church. And that's what caused them to scatter. And in their scattering, that's what caused them to bring the gospel to Antioch. And then the gospel in Antioch led to this vibrant church that was bursting at the seams. And then who was the one to come and lead that congregation? Saul. Just amazing, beautiful, mysterious the kind of plan that only God could orchestrate. See, God prepares his people. God moves his people. God equips his people with exactly what they need. And finally, we learn in verses 27 to 30 that God unites his people. Look with me now. Verses 27 to 30. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. See, God uses persecution to launch his people into cross-cultural mission. And then God uses natural disaster and famine to bind his new multicultural people together. Now, there's a lot that we could say about Agabus and the gift of prophecy, and we're going to do that later because we're going to come into Agabus later. But for now, I want to just focus on on the message. Agabus says that a famine is coming, and the church realizes that the ones who are going to be most um, terribly impacted by this famine are the church in Jerusalem. 
Because as we saw just a few verses ago, at this point, the followers of Jesus are being referred to as Christians. So they are, they're officially being recognized as, as a different people. As, but at, at first, they were just Judaism, but confused. So they, everybody saw them and they thought, okay, this is just like some little movement within Judaism. But it kind of reached a point eventually where they recognized this isn't Judaism. This is something distinct, something different. And because now they're represented as being apart from Judaism, within Jerusalem, they are outside of the umbrella of protection. All of the social systems and structures that would care for people in time of famine, those were reserved for the Jewish people in Jerusalem, not for these heretics. And so this church in Jerusalem is now in a very vulnerable place. And what does God do? He puts this plan in motion that the Christians outside of Jerusalem and outside of Judea would pool their resources and care for these believers. This natural disaster provided an opportunity for the Gentile church to come alongside and support the Jerusalem church in their time of need. So just imagine, I talked about how Jerusalem had been the center, but then now 300 miles over, Antioch becomes the new center. Jerusalem was a church that was led by Jewish Christians, Antioch is a church that's led by Gentile Christians. And boy, there's a lot of potential for animosity here, isn't there? There's a lot of potential for competition here. And, and that's, we, we see that all the time. We see that in modern days. But you add to it all the hostility. This shouldn't have worked. And yet God, in his wisdom, orchestrates for this famine to come. And what the famine does is it provides an opportunity for this Gentile church in Antioch to come alongside in love and to support this church in Jerusalem. And a bridge is built. And suddenly these people who should not be united, this relationship that should not have been cultivated, comes together in a beautiful way. See, the same God who sent the winds of Pentecost sent the waves of persecution and then the pangs of famine. And the lesson that we're so slow to learn, but that we see here in Acts 11, is that God always sends exactly what is needed when it is needed. An old Portuguese proverb says, God writes straight with crooked lines. So in Acts 11, we see a wide-scale view of the early church. From Caesarea to Jerusalem to Antioch, God speaking through angels and visions, apostles and prophets to prepare his people. He sent tragedy and persecution to move his people. He sent leaders to equip his people. He sent a famine to unite his people. And all the while, his plan for his people and for his mission was never once in jeopardy. God is always in control. And that is the lesson that we learn in this passage, this lesson in providence. But as we come to a close, I'd like to go a step further. Rather than just learning the lesson, I'd like to take a moment applying the lesson as we conclude. Because here, hopefully by God's grace, we have seen the providence of God in Acts chapter 11. Good. But sometimes it's easier to see the providence of God in Acts chapter 11 than it is to see the providence of God in our newspaper or to see the providence of God in our home. For example, think about, think about what God has done even in our culture on a broader scale. I'll, I'll touch on it. You know, if God was using persecution, the stoning of Stephen, if God was using a famine to do good things in his people, then, then it remains, I think we could conclude that God was using this virus to do good things in his people as well, was he not? He was at work, serving a purpose. Do you see God's hand in the last three years? He exposed some things in the church. 
didn't he? See, we'll never recreate the tension. You know, we read about what was happening here with the Jewish Christians, the Gentile Christians. We're never going to be able to go back and recreate what that must have been like. You know, those significant disagreements, fundamental, foundational disagreements. How did they walk together? We'll never be able to relive that. But we got a sliver taste of it over the last three years, didn't we? It's hard to worship together when you have fundamental, foundational disagreements. We just lived through that. Can I tell you something? It's good that we saw that. It's good that we felt that. One might even say it was providential. The greatest threat that was facing this early church was not the Romans or the Jews or the persecution or the famines. The greatest threat that was facing them was implosion from within. An inability to walk together. Fights over doctrine. Setting up unnecessary barriers. Self-righteousness. Prejudice. That was, that was the biggest obstacle. That was the biggest challenge facing this early church. Can I tell you something? Implosion from within is the greatest threat that Redeemer City Church faces today. I love all of you, but we are all very different people. We all have um, preferences that we value. We all have um, particularities that we're really passionate about. Each of us, myself included, all of us, different upbringings, different hurts from our past that shape us, different things that we're excited about, all of us, very different people. And I'll tell you, I often lie in bed at night and I wonder, God, how are you going to hold us together? And in my sinful moments, I confess, this is sin, it's not right to be anxious about anything, but in my sinful moments, I find myself stressing and thinking, at what point does this powder keg just blow up? You know, we've seen in Acts that God knows how to build his church. And he builds his church, praise God. Like, we've seen growth here. But can I tell you, there are times when I lie in bed and I'm thinking about how all the new people God's bringing. And instead of seeing that as a beautiful opportunity, I just see that as, as more fuel. One more person who might come in and finally strike the match and blow this place to pieces. All it takes is for one person to say, you know what, I'm fighting over this preference. I will win the day on this issue. All it takes is for one person to say, we're going to rip this apart because this is, it, it's, we're always right on the cusp. And that's, as a pastor, that scares me. And I look at what God is doing and I'm like, Lord, please. But that's sinful and wrong because what I'm reminded of here in Acts chapter 11 is that the same God who builds his church is committed to keeping his church united. Right? As he is building his church, simultaneously here in Acts chapter 11, we see him building it, preparing it. Building it, uniting it, tying it all together. He never gets ahead of himself. Right? He's not like me. He never puts the cart before the horse. He never gets too excited and caught up and then, oh, and puts a flaw in the scheme. No, he does it exactly right at exactly the right time. He builds us and he unites us. And he does it at just the right time. Praise God for that. And he does that in the big details like famines, like viruses. He uses those to prepare us and to open our eyes to see things. But then he also prepares us through the little details in each of our lives. I mean, you, you could just do a, an amazing character study on what did God do in Peter's life to prepare him for this? And we've seen it as we walk through the series, haven't we? When, even when he was sitting in Simon the Tanner's house, and we're like, what's happening in Peter's life? This is a new thing. What did God do in Saul of Tarsus' life? Boy, that's an interesting sermon. To prepare him to be the man for this point. What, what did God do in Barnabas' life? Cornelius is like, all of these individual people 
God is working in each of their lives, bringing them together as the church. And in all the lessons he taught them, he uses it to bind his people together in unity. So let me just ask you to think about your life, the good, the bad, the ugly. What is God doing in your life to prepare you for what's in store for his people? The good things. You know, think about it's Mother's Day. Hey, we can tie it back to Mother's Day. Moms, you got these, these newborns, and suddenly you find yourself sleep-deprived. Suddenly you find yourself up at night, and I said good things, didn't I? It is a good thing. You'll miss it someday, right? And you get to, you're rocking this baby, and you're learning patience, and you're learning how to, how to be tender, and you've got opportunities now to pray, and you're able to empathize with those who are sleep-deprived and weak. You know, God's doing a good thing, isn't he? Or, or, you know, I think about those of you who you've just been through a Bible study and God really has opened your eyes and he's equipping you and teaching you. Or, or perhaps he's teaching you just in your, your Bible reading this year or, or your prayer life this year, these new habits that are developing in you. And you can see it. You can see the growth. Think about who you were five years ago and think about who you are now. Think about all the amazing things that he's doing. I see some of you smiling because it's like, wow, he's done some amazing things in five years. Yeah, he is. And that's not just for you. He's doing that work in you for the collective work of his people to, to send us on mission and to bind us together in unity. Praise God. He's using the bad stuff too. So think about the bad stuff. That's easier to do, isn't it? That, that relationship that is so straining, that person that just never seems to see eye to eye with you, God's using that. He's teaching you patience. right? He's teaching you how to be forbearing. Is that the right word? I think so. He's teaching you to extend mercy, right? To forgive. Think about all those doors that have closed in the last five years. It's harder to see God's goodness in this, isn't it? Those job opportunities that you were so excited about and the door closed. A chance, a chance to move and start afresh, door closed. You feel like you're stuck. Is it possible that maybe, just maybe, God has put you in that workplace and closed all the doors because that's the mission field he wants you in? Is it possible that God has closed all of those doors because this is the church? These are the people of God that he wants you to walk with? That 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 family of yours is your mission field? Do you see his providence in even the bad stuff? You're not where you are by mistake. There's purpose behind it. In the good, the bad, and finally in the ugly. The ugly is where we really have the hardest time seeing God's hand. Sometimes in the ugly, it almost feels irreverent to see God's hand in it. Like, can we say that, that God's hand was in the stoning of Stephen? This wonderful man, as his lifeless body was pelted by jagged stones? People wept over Stephen. Was God working in that? Well, through the stoning of Stephen, didn't God send his church 300 miles away to Antioch, which would then send missionaries across the world through the stoning of Stephen, didn't God draw thousands, millions of people to himself? Now, they wept over Stephen for months, years even, but the rejoicing in heaven over all those who were saved, that's going to carry on into all eternity. God's hand was in the ugly. And his hand is is in the ugly in your life too. I'll give you a moment to think about that, that one thing that just seems so ugly, so bad, that you can't, in your wildest imagination, with all the faith you can muster, you can't foresee any goodness coming out of it. What is that thing in your life? He's working. 
And we know, Paul says in Romans 8.28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. He is working. Now that doesn't mean that we need to pretend that the ugly is somehow beautiful. They wept over Stephen, and so they should. And some folks were weeping over that famine, and so they should. We can and we should weep over our heartbreaks. But in our weeping, let's not forget that God is still in control and He's still on His throne and He's working. Preparing us for the task ahead. Moving us to where we need to be. Equipping us for the work in store. And uniting us with our brothers and sisters in Christ. That's the story that we find in Acts chapter 11. And brothers and sisters, that's the story that we find here in this room. God is good. He is committed to building His church and He is committing to tying us together. And he does all of this providentially in his perfect wisdom. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Oh, Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you that you promise us that your word goes forth and it never returns void. You promise us that the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. And you tell us that your word is sharper than any double-edged sword. Cuts through. And I pray that you would cut through today to our hearts, to our minds, that you would help us to see what we need to see. And Lord, I thank you that I have no idea what it is that the individual men and women in this room need to see. Lord, the reality is each of us has a different lesson. Um, Lord, your, your word goes out and your spirit just applies it in different ways. Perhaps there are people here today who, whose eyes are being opened to see the goodness and the glory of God. And God, I pray that today you would cause them to see that Jesus is the only way to be in right relationship with God. And if they have not yet confessed their sin and put their trust in Jesus, let this be the day, God. I pray that you would do that miracle. Even though this, didn't protect, this wasn't a gospel sermon by any means, and yet, Lord, your gospel goes forth. So, Lord, if you're drawing people to yourself, Lord, we thank you for that. Lord, others are today just trying to see Lord, with the faith that they have, they're trying to see your goodness in their circumstances. God, I pray that you would give them eyes to see. Lord, help them to trust you, even when all the pieces don't seem to fit in place, even when it still feels mysterious and challenging. Lord, I pray that they would just see your goodness, your kindness, and your wisdom. And then, Lord, I I pray for your church. And Lord, I've, I've mentioned Redeemer, but now I just want to scale back. And I pray for your church in Aurelia, I pray for your church in Canada. I pray for your church around the world. What a blessing to baptize our brother today from Jordan. Uh, Lord, you are building your kingdom. And it all stems back to these pages that we're, we're reading today. Lord, that the stoning of Stephen led ultimately to the church gathered here in Aurelia. Lord, your wisdom is unsearchable. And we thank you for all that you're doing. God, would you bind your people together? Lord, I, I want to just pray a big prayer. I pray that you would help us as the Church of Canada to learn how to walk together. And Lord, if, if you are to use hardship, trials, tribulations, whatever it is, Lord, we, we trust that you will do exactly what is needed. But I pray that you would build your church and you would unite your church here in Canada, that we would learn what it is to walk together. Uh, Lord Jesus, we think of John 17, when you prayed for the unity of your church. You are committed to this It's a unity that is bound up in truth, but it's a unity, nevertheless. 
And Lord, I pray that we would have hearts that want what you want. So Lord, would you do that work, we pray, and help us now to respond to you with praise, our great God. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Worship team, would you lead us?